Our second scripture reading um, comes from the prophet Isaiah, the first chapter, verses 10 through 18. And Isaiah, at this point, is writing a warning to the people, saying, if you don't change your ways, things aren't going to look so good. And so the warning is what we're going to be reading now. Listen now, for the Spirit is speaking to the church. Hear the Lord's word, you leaders of Sodom. Listen to our God's teaching, people of Gomorrah. What should I think about all of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I'm fed up with entirely burned offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't want the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats. When you come to appear before me, who asked this from you, this trampling of my temple's courts? Stop bringing worthless offerings. Your incense repulses me. New moon, Sabbath, and the calling of an assembly. I can't stand wickedness with celebration. I hate your new moons and your festivals. They've become a burden that I'm tired of bearing. When you extend your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even when you pray for a long time, I won't listen. Your hands are stained with blood. Wash, be clean, remove your ugly deeds from my sight, put an end to such evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Come now and let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. If they are red as crimson, they will become like wool. The word of God for the people of God. Today is Reformation Sunday. And in many of these Reformation Sunday traditions, we have things like the bagpiper leading us in. We sing old Lutheran hymns. Did you notice that that first hymn was written by Martin Luther? We talk about the days of the true Kirk of Scotland and Calvin's ordered church of Geneva. Ecclesia reformata, semper reformanda, secundum verbum dei. If your Latin's a little rusty, that's the church reformed and always being reformed according to the word of God. It's so easy for today to be a bombastic, over-the-top service that we can lose sight of what it is that we are remembering, what it is that we are celebrating, and what it is that we are called to do as this reformed church. So let's take a moment and delve into this weird Reformation Sunday. First of all, how many of you have heard of the Reformation before I started speaking today? Oh, good. All right. Hands raising all over. That's excellent. What do you know of it? Anyone want to take a shot? What is the Reformation? Pope's control, moving away from it. Okay, what else do we have? 95 theses. I'll be saying 95 statements so as to not get confused with another word, but that is exactly the correct word, thesen in German. Thesen, okay, yes, fine, the TH. It's nice to have a German speaker behind me to <laughs> remind me. What else? What else about the Reformation? How about some names? Who was involved in the, in the Reformation? Martin Luther. Okay, we got one. Who else? Zwingli. Now, that's a name we don't hear very much. Excellent. Well done. 
What other names? John Knox. Scots Presbyterian, yeah. John Calvin, or Jean Calvin if you're trying to do the French, which I can't do and I apologize. <laughs> but it's interesting that his name is French and yet we think of it as English all the time. But John Calvin, yeah, moved from France to Geneva to run the Reformed Church there. What other names? Reformation end in the 1500s, 1600s? Here's a hint, what's our motto? Always reforming. That's why this is a little misleading of a question. I did that on purpose, I have to admit. It suggests that the Reformation was a one-time event, a historical time period or something to that extent. But the church reformed always being reformed. God brings about reformation at all times. At all times in our individual lives, in the life of the church, in the life of the world. Though we can talk about the founding of the Protestant churches as the Reformation, that really ought to be shorthand for the recognition of God's constant Reformation. And I admit that's a little unwieldy, but that's the difficulty you get when you're trying to be precise and accurate in your labeling of historical time periods. All right, let's jump in. Turn back the clock a mere half millennium. And we find that Europe, then the center of Christianity, is roiling with political, theological, and social conflict. Ordinary folks are having an incredibly difficult time getting by. Power and wealth are accumulating in the hands of a very few, and the acknowledged leader of the church is preaching that you can buy forgiveness for your sins if you can't be bothered to do penance after confession. One family controls the nations of Spain, Austria, and is in the process of bribing their way in to controlling the fractious territories that I'm going to go ahead and refer to as the Germanies. Confusingly, in this time frame, they're called the Holy Roman Empire, but that gives us a whole different vision of what that is. So I'm just going to refer to them as the Germanies, these nation states that are tiny little things, principalities sometimes called. This set of principalities has seven people who elect their emperor, four governors, and three bishops. And yet it's an empire. It's very confusing. In the midst of all of this turmoil, an obscure monk in Wittenberg has been preaching against the way the pope was trying to sell repentance. True repentance, this monk believed, comes from within and involves changing oneself completely. So to give you a taste of what this monk, whose name is Martin Luther, was complaining about, Martin Luther in German, was complaining about, here's a few of those statements that he nailed to the church door. Christians are to be taught that One who gives to the poor or lends to the needy does a better deed than one who buys indulgences. Because love grows by works of love, man thereby becomes better. One does not, however, become better by means of indulgences, but is merely freed from penalties. Christians are to be taught that one who sees a needy one and passes them by, yet gives their money for indulgences, does not by papal indulgences, but God's wrath. Christians are to be taught that unless they have more than they need, they must reserve enough for their family needs 
and by no means squander it on indulgences. It goes on like this. Those were four of the 95 statements that were nailed to the door. And he nailed them to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral on Wednesday, October 31st, 1517, which is why Reformation Sunday is the closest to October 31st that we have. There's some connection. For all the hoopla that surrounds that event, maybe you'd kind of expected some stronger language from these statements. But remember that Luther did not intend on starting the Protestant Revolution, the Protestant Reformation. He just happened to be the right person at the right time, in the right place, for that Reformation to happen. He's also not alone in that. In our passage from Isaiah today, God warns the people that they've missed the point. When you extend your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even when you pray for a long time, I won't listen. Your hands are stained with blood. Wash, be clean, remove your ugly deeds from my sight. Put an end to such evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Isaiah writing about 2,000 years before Luther, was facing a similar situation. The established religion of his people, the worship of God in Israel and Judah, mostly Judah at this point, was in trouble from political powers at home and abroad. What had been one kingdom had fractured in two, and many kings in both north and south were chasing pagan wealth and ignoring the very things that God had called God's children to do care for each other, seek justice, do good. Instead, instead, many of the kings and many of the people following their example were making a big show of worship and asking forgiveness, but then not actually doing any of the things that they should in the world. The hands of the ruling class were stained with blood, not just literally from battles between kingdoms, but metaphorically for all those who were not helped, despite the opportunity to do so. Now, it is important to note here that Isaiah is preaching this word from Adonai in the temple gates. He's not calling for the temple to be torn down or people to stop worshiping God in the ways that God has called the people to worship. Instead, Isaiah is calling people to task, to do what God has told them to do, to repent to return, to reform, to worship God, not just in the temple by words, but in the world by action. Isaiah, Amos, Hosea, these prophets are all speaking up and telling people to turn back to God's way. There's a lot of parallels between Luther and Isaiah that are intriguing, but it doesn't stop there. The late church historian Phyllis Tickle describes a regular, approximately 500-year cycle of reforms and great change, running as far back as we have reliable records. Those great changes are these. Starting in about 2000 BCE, we don't have exact dates early on, but we do a little bit later, Abraham's journey from Ur, that is, leaving Sumer, and coming into the Holy Land and beyond. 1450 BCE, the return from Egypt and the Exodus story. 
The establishment of the monarchy in Israel was about 950 BCE. Uh, BCE, by the way, is before the Common Era, if you're not used to seeing that. I use BCE and CE um, to be a little bit clearer. Not many people speak Latin, and the AD gets lost into what it actually means. So before the Common Era and Common Era, or before the Christian Era, Christian Era, depending on who you want to be and how you want to present yourself. Uh, the establishment of the Israel monarchy was about 950 BCE. 538 BCE was the return from exile in Assyria and Babylon. We actually have the year for that when Cyrus returned. Cyrus the Great had the people return. And then we go on to Jesus' ministry, resurrection, and then the destruction of the temple. That's a pretty big reform in the world. The destruction of the second temple was in 70 CE. And we continue on. The Council of Chalcedon. Uh, I encourage you to look this up. October 8th through November 1st, 451 CE. The Great Schism between Catholic and Eastern Orthodox, 1054 CE. The Protestant Reformation, which we've been talking about today, starting October 31st, 1517, but continuing, oh, so long, <laughs> right through the Thirty Years' War, which was in the 1600s. And that brings us to today. You notice the last one up there is the Great Emergence. Great Emergence. I have a date of approximately 1980. Phyllis Tickle suggests this started about 1960, uh, along with the hippies and that era, so that was rather appropriate that that was going on with the children's message. Um, it got kind of derailed around 1980 and started up again about 2005. And they're still considering to us to be in the midst of this great emergence. We'll come back to it later, probably not today, unless I get really interested in going there today. Truly, there is nothing new under the sun, as the book of Ecclesiastes insists. That writer tells us that there is a time and a purpose for everything, and that God made everyone beautiful everything beautiful for its own time, placing the whole of eternity in the human heart, even though we cannot see the whole scope of it from beginning to end. Luther echoed the statement in Wittenberg, writing, the time for silence is over, the time to speak has come. And speak he did. Called before a church council in Worms, this is another one of these great words. It's called the Diet of Worms, but Worms looks like worms. So a lot of people think the Diet of Worms. It's a church council he's called before to speak. The Diet of Worms, the Council of Worms. At that council, Luther was asked if he would recant the position in all of his books, given that the papal council had decried him and them as heretical. Luther stood strong in his conviction, expressing that, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Scriptures, or by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus I cannot and will not recant because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. 
and he sat down. That's incredible. To know that in so speaking, he was to be condemned to death. He was condemned a heretic by the church and sentenced to be executed by the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, otherwise known as the Germanies. Yet he was protected by one of the princes, escaping execution and starting the long process of reform, both in the newly splintered Protestant churches and in the form of the Counter-Reformation in the Catholic Church. Luther's ideas took root not only in the Germanies, but in France and Switzerland, the Netherlands, England, Scotland, since this was also the beginning of the colonization of the New World and of Africa. Many of these Protestants fled prosecution in their home countries for the questionable life of a colonist. These people's lives, their very existence, was, to coin a phrase, totally reformed. They were different and formed into a different world, exchanging the familiarity and fatigue of life as they had always known it for hard work, newness, and awakening of spirit in the new world and in the European bastions of safety that could be found. Think of the Reformation like this. An egg hatches and a caterpillar crawls out. It eats the leaves of its context, and it grows depending on the nutrients it finds. At some point, maybe beset by birds or just when the time is right, the caterpillar goes into a chrysalis or cocoon. After it is completely reformed in the cocoon, it emerges and looks very different as a butterfly, then laying eggs for another generation to go through the same process. Each caterpillar and butterfly looks different, but the process is the same each time. Now, I see you anxiously asking me, what is that process? Pastor Lucas, what is this process? It is the process of always being reformed according to the word of God. For though we emerge time and time again from egg and chrysalis, it is always God who calls us to be reformed again. It is God who finds us when we are lost and calls us to right relationship with each other. You see, while these great reformations are taking place constantly, they don't happen without our participation. Remember, Jesus called people to repent, to turn back to God and away from sin and separation. Jesus wasn't the first to make this call, and people did repent at the reformations before and the reformations to come. But what Jesus did was lift this call and say, you can be reborn, reformed after death itself. And when we are reformed, when we answer God's call, that's when we truly emerge as the butterflies that are beautiful for the next cycle to continue after us. Diana Butler Bass, historian and theologian, puts it this way. It may seem, with all this background, as if religion is on a trajectory of unstoppable change. But genuine spiritual change does not result from historical determinism. Spiritual awakening is not ultimately the work of invisible cultural forces. Instead, 
It is the work of learning to see differently, of prayer and of conversion. It is something people do. Awakening is the result of what New Testament writers referred to as metanoia, a change of perspective and outlook that moves human beings beyond chaos toward a new harmony with God and divine things. Metanoia, that's a Greek word that she slips in there. It's a word of biblical Greek that usually we translate repentance, but it means to turn, to turn back, to return to God. This is what happens in our story from Luke today. We see this metanoia, this repentance, this change of perspective that changes everything in Zacchaeus' life. And we are called in the midst of the great emergence to act like Zacchaeus. So pay attention. Little Zac is a supremely wealthy man. He has purchased the right to farm, not the land of Jericho, but the people who are farming the land. He's a tax farmer, the one who has the right to oversee all of the tax collectors within the region of Jericho. As such, Rome sends him a target tax that he's got to submit to them, and anything he collects above that rate is his profit, what he gets to keep for his job. Not surprisingly, he's wealthy, and the people consider him the worst kind of sinner, one who is oppressing his own people for personal benefit. Yet there's something, something special about Jesus' ministry that has called Zacchaeus to repentance, to metanoia, to fix this mess that he's caused. So, since he's cheated people and his big temptation seems to have been about money, he gives half of what he has to the poor and repays those he has defrauded fourfold. And Jesus tells him he is no longer lost, but is found. Zacchaeus repented, reformed, not just in saying a prayer, but in doing good, in no longer oppressing, but in benefiting those who were oppressed. We too are called to this change, to this reforming from a lost caterpillar to a butterfly, soaring on the breath of God, from the fatigue of a me-first society to the awakening of God's love, filling the emergence of care for each other. No longer defrauding, no longer hurting, but holding each other close and healing the wounds we have caused. My friends, this is the good news. You are loved. From beginning to end and beyond, you are loved. God forms you and reforms you, and calls you to love as God has loved you. So may you be reformed by God's love. May you wake to Jesus' call, seeking justice for the oppressed. May the Holy Spirit bring you to repent, turning back to God whenever you find yourself leaving God's path. Amen.